on the couch this morning. We are going to be talking science with the guys behind SciFest Dubai, Rowan Roberts, along with the science enthusiast, Boff, if you like, Adam Griffin. Good morning to you. Morning. <laughs> Good morning. And I'm still reeling, listening there to the trailer to the film The Theory of Everything, focusing on Stephen Hawking's life and his relationship with his wife. And uh, we'll get into discussions about that movie in just a moment. But coming up on the show, we're going to be looking at science news. What's uh, grabbing the attention of my science panel this morning when it comes to media, world media and local news stories as well. And uh, catching up what's happening with SciFest Dubai and Cafe scientifique the regular meetup group and uh, what the topic's going to be of discussion whereas you have your cup of coffee on a friday afternoon or indeed why not pull up a chair this morning and get involved in the conversation when it comes to science when it comes to physics when it comes to technology philosophy whatever it may be uh, join the conversation this morning and we're going to be asking and attempting to answer questions like why do we get nervous and why do zebras have stripes and why do certain sounds annoy some people and not others so what's your question this morning when it comes to science technology space travel time philosophy what's your question let's put the guys to the test this morning and get their theories of everything literally here on the couch so guys how's it been for you rowan busy time what's been happening in your world well over the last um a couple of months, we've had a few meetups for Cafe Scientifique. Uh, we did something really exciting. We, uh, we, we, we got hold of a real-life NASA astronaut, uh, Dr. Don Thomas. And last month, we had him over for Cafe Scientifique, and he spoke to a huge crowd of people, many young people as well, uh, about his experiences in space. And I'm not exaggerating. It was the best thing I've seen in Dubai in my 37 years uh-huh. here. It was absolutely riveting to hear him talk about just even the mundane things, you know, the food he ate, uh, going to the washroom, the, the and more profound things like what he could see from outside his window and and things like that. So it was um, uh, one of the best Cafe Scientific meetups that, we, that we've had, hugely popular. So that was one. And... Um, uh, before that, we had um, a sort of a stargazing event because Jupiter was at its opposition. And so we got together a bunch of amateur astronomers in Dubai and we went out uh, to the outskirts of the city and we had five or six telescopes set up and it was open, free to the public and um, over 200 people showed up and peered through the telescope, looked at Jupiter, Saturn, Mars and our own moon. So it was uh, a sublime experience for a lot of people who'd never seen through a telescope before. Fantastic. (laughs) And you know, you work in education, you grew up here in the UAE and you're based at Winchester School and you uh, teach the teachers at GEMS, that's what you do, as well as all these other things involved with science, and you're so passionate about it, and setting up SciFest Dubai, which is where I met Adam Griffin the first time, that's when we met first, and of course you're getting used to Adam's voice, because he's from the Kamali Clinic, you were on the show just last week actually, the week before last, uh, with your colleague, you're an occupational therapist by trade, but your enthusiasm for science, like Rowan, is phenomenal. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Well, do you know what? It's one of my favorite quotes that uh, Einstein said, actually, when he was asked, like, what is it that makes him so special? He says, when people think of a quintessential scientist, it's this kind of uh, footling professor widow's 
uh, Albert Einstein image that they have and he said the only thing special about him was he had like boundless interest he had a passion and curiosity in the world around him and that's kind of what I try to emulate as well not trying to link myself to Einstein in a terribly grandiose way but that's it I'm just interesting and stuff and I find when I like Rowan I'm working with uh, the kids as well every day and they're really easy to get interested in this as well. They have a lot of other competing things for their interest in this day and age, but when they see the kind of amazing stuff that's around them every day, what they have access to, they are kind of a little bit in awe of it. And then you see that little kindle of curiosity ignite and then there's no stopping. And for really small children, you know, you, you, you're familiar with that the why question why 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 and you're like okay 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 and that's it's it's within us as we are born and grow is to question and maybe sometimes as adults we get lost with our questioning but that's what i love about talking to you guys is you know ask questions look around you get a tune with the world that you live in and ask the why questions yeah absolutely um i know it's like we're only minutes into the show and about to bring up my daughter already This this is a new record <laughs> but I did a talk a little while ago about baby scientists and the idea is that babies are born scientists. You'll never see a more perfect illustration of the scientific method than watch a baby pick up something new that they've never seen before. So they look and they kind of query this, what's this? They form a hypothesis. Is this something I can stick in my mouth? Let's find out. Put it in their mouth. Oh, that's not nice. Wah! Tell everyone <laughs> about their findings and then they'll find another baby to try and get them to do it as well and replicate their findings. So it's this perfect little baby scientist in action. And so we naturally do that it's the most natural thing in the world and for you as a teacher and working with young people as well as now in your role uh, working with professionals and teaching the teacher Rowan but that curiosity continues as the child grows older and I know you uh, worked with a lot of young people on SciFest Dubai last year where young people were volunteering to be a part of this festival exactly uh, the young people were incredible in fact m- many of the events we had 25 different events and it was a celebration of science through the arts because we fully recognize not everyone's interested in science but we've got to seduce people we've got to make them realize that science is much too important to leave it just to the scientists so it was a celebration of science through drama music fashion debates lectures conferences and panel discussions and so much more and many of these events were organized by the more able gifted and talented students and they did an extraordinary job they had this hunger this enthusiasm this uh, this desire to make the festival a, a, a success and it was just so heartening uh, to see, but going back to what uh, Adam mentioned, how children are born, kids are born scientists. They are. The question is, why do they lose that sense of curiosity? And uh, I don't want to sound too negative so early in the show, but uh, I, I really do believe it's the way science is taught in schools. Uh, in many schools, not all, but in many schools, science is taught as a bunch of facts and equations and statistics, as just information for kids to memorize to pass an exam. But uh, as Carl Sagan, the cosmologist, points out, science is much more than a body of facts and information. It's a way of thinking. And that's one of the reasons why we do Café Scientifique. We want people to start thinking scientifically because when you look at the world through a scientific lens, the world becomes a very different place. It becomes less mysterious and it becomes a world full of answers and explanations. And you start to distance yourself from pseudoscience and superstition. So that's one of the reasons why we started Café Scientifique, to bring science to the layperson.
and the next uh, meetup and it is it's very relaxed anybody can attend um, have your cup of coffee on a Friday afternoon and get into great discussions and the next one's on June the 26th and what's your sort of focus of conversation going to be? Well the focus is on artificial intelligence and the technological singularity I mean as the show progresses we can talk about technological singularity but there's been a spate of films on artificial intelligence Ex Machina and The Avengers and so we thought uh, maybe the zeitgeist is just right for us to talk about uh, artificial intelligence and maybe um, uh, uh, bring out some of the concerns people have about the advent of super intelligence, artificial super intelligence. Well, if you've got any questions, let us know on 4001. Let's open it all up. The world is our oyster, as they say, to talk science this morning. And you already quoted Albert Einstein. And actually, I uh, pulled a quote from him this morning. Only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. So what's your question when it comes to science, technology, space travel, philosophy and physics? Let us know, 4001. On the couch this morning, we're talking all things science with founder and director of SciFest Dubai Rowan Roberts and uh, science enthusiast Adam Griffin and uh, people are texting in already with their questions uh, one on war how long is it going to take before the human race realizes war is a waste of time and life so we'll get into that discussion in a short while but we started off the show with a clip from the movie The Theory of Everything which is based on Stephen Hawking's life and his relationship with his wife now Stephen Hawking is the former Lucasian professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge and author of A Brief History of Time, which is an international bestseller. In 1963, Hawking contracted motor neuron disease and was given two years to live. Yet he went on to Cambridge to become a brilliant researcher and professor. Uh, he was the fellow of Gonville and Caius College. Um, from 1979 to 2009, he held the post of Lucasian professor at Cambridge, the chair held by Isaac Newton in 1663. And Professor Hawken has, has over a dozen honorary degrees. He was awarded the CBE in 1982. He's the fellow. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and a member of the U.S. National Academy of Science. Um, highly regarded, an incredible man, an incredible mind. Absolutely. When I mentioned before about how people think of the atypical scientist as Einstein. Well, Hawking, in the public consciousness, Hawking's kind of the Einstein of our time. So this man, is, it's hard to imagine a more kind of well-respected, not only in the public, but in the academic community as well. This guy was the Lucasian professor in, in Cambridge for 30 years. And even now, when he's so famous and he's, he's so well kind of recognized and respected, he's still doing really interesting work. And he came up with these things like the gravitational singularity theorem, and the, a thing called Hawking radiation in the study of black holes. But much more than that too, he's just a broadly interested and interesting man. If you haven't seen that movie we showed a clip of at the beginning, I would absolutely encourage you to do it. It's, you don't have to be a scientifically minded person. In fact, there's kind of a running joke in the science community about the movie that's called The Theory of Everything, but it's about everything but the theory. <laughs> there's not, they don't talk about the science. It's all about this man and his relationship with his wife. And then he's just such a remarkable human being. And it shows how remarkable human beings can do remarkable things. Yeah, and overcome so many obstacles, obviously, with his health and how his wife helped and supported him. And you know, somebody like me, who's not 
science aware particularly in that i really understand everything but i loved this movie it's very well written it's very well acted very well directed but you what you do pick up on is this genius mind and how special he clearly was from a very very young age rowan your thoughts on stephen hawking just to allay the uh fears of some some of our listeners who might be thinking this is a science film it's far from a science film it's a it's a drama it's it's about human beings it's he may be the one of the most intelligent people in the world but uh, this film depicts his human side one of the earliest books i remember reading about cosmology and quantum physics was a brief history of time and since then stephen hawking has always been the sort of obscure uh, mysterious figure in the in the field of science and this film just makes him a little more human you know we get to know um how he how he got his disease how he battled it and it just um uh, gives us that a uh, humorous side to his personality as well uh, you know i i realize he has the sort of impish mischievous hu- sense of humor that you don't normally get when you see him um on on youtube or uh, doing his lectures and things or through his books I was looking at some of the movie websites about this and uh, there's one uh, here, the uh, Theory of Everything versus True Story of Stephen and Jane Hawking. So you can check it out for yourself. It's on uh, historyversushollywood.com and actually quite a lot of it is close to the true story but also the fact that when Stephen Hawking watched the movie his nurse wiped a tear from his cheek apparently according to this and um, he lent his voice, he gave his voice to the movie as well and so it it, i it made me cry i have to say at the end of it i think it's a beautiful beautiful movie and really like you say about humanity human beings love and of course bedded within all of this is academia and science and passion for questioning and observing the world Mm, exactly what comes through is um at the end of the day is that it's a love story and that even if you're this genius ultimately it's all about love (laughs) yeah yeah and the science of love why not you know absolutely and even as well kind of pairing with the love aspect is the kind of power of the human spirit so we can everyone's aware that Stephen Hawking has some physical disabilities he kind of works with but he's got I don't know if you know his actual diagnosis is called ALS so it's uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis which is I work with people with this back in Ireland and it's a really heavy diagnosis to get he got a very early onset that one when he was still in he was still a student and he was only 21 years old you can see it in the movie oh, and but it was it, but it was the 1960s yeah so there wasn't exactly. perhaps the advancements there are now yeah even even now it's a, a pretty heavy diagnosis to get and uh, as he was told throughout the movie and throughout his life he didn't have that much longer to live but he said despite this i'm going to do what i'm going to do in a way i'm going to follow my interests and pursue this so he thought his first goal was just to publish his doctoral thesis be- while he still had time and then he's done so much more besides so it's just incredible what can be achieved. Yeah, and he's still going strong. Absolutely. Um, just for, to understand, because I don't fully understand it, Rowan, but um, obviously <laughs> might take a, l- a little bit longer than the two hours that we've got today. But, you know, in layman's terms, A Brief History of Time, it was an, it's a huge international bestseller written by Stephen Hawking. In essence, what is this about? Well, essentially it's about uh, the, the big, um, uh, fields in science uh, space time energy matter uh, how did all this come about and it sort of mixes the theory of relativity with quantum physics uh, but just touching upon uh, what 
Adam mentioned how the film, uh, it's called The Theory of Everything, but it talks about everything but The Theory of Everything. And so just to explain briefly what The Theory of Everything is. So in, in, in particle physics, or rather in quantum, uh, in physics rather, we have quantum physics, which is the science of the very small, and we have gravity, The Theory of Gravity, which is the science of the very big. Now, both these... Um, uh, the equations from both these fields work extremely well. They're very accurate. You can use them to make extraordinary predictions. But when you try to merge the, th uh, the equations from, the, uh, uh, from quantum physics with gravity, everything falls apart. So the theory of, uh, sorry, the theory of everything is this um, a theoretical hypothetical equation that manages to combine gravity with quantum physics and have one sleek, beautiful equation. Uh, and so that's the theory of everything. <laughs> Science is like that. Science is like things that are elegant and they work. It's just there is a certain element. When you look at the mathematics, it is beautiful in a way. And that's what they want. They want something that fits relatively neatly. And the thing like the standard model of particle physics doesn't align. There's a little missing gaps and things here we can't resolve. But that's what Hawking was working towards. It's funny that I'm really kind of impressed that this your first intro, Rowan, was reading A Brief History of Time. Because it's one of these books that it's famous for being quite impenetrable. And it was on the, the Sunday Times bestseller list for 237 weeks, but it's known as the biggest bestseller that no one got past the first like 20 pages of. So everyone but, likes to buy it and yeah, have it absolutely. on their shelf. To the extent, yeah, that he produced a second volume called A Briefer History of Time. <laughs> swear to God. And that is actually a good little introduction. But some of the stuff he did really interesting work recently. There's uh, a book he did with, uh, what was his name? I can't remember the older author's name called uh, Grand Design. You know uh, I can't remember you. Maladno? Maladno. That's him. That's yeah. him, yes. And uh, that's, again, big, big topics, but explained in relatively layman's terms as well. And also one other thing to say, that Hawking, we think, oh, he's this great mind, but he also can make mistakes as well. For instance, there was a very interesting story that he lost a bat to another physicist. Kip um, Called uh, Gordon Kane. Uh, no, Kip Thon. For the, the Higgs boson. Was no, the, Higgs the Higgs boson. He was better than a guy called... Uh, <laughs> see, this is scientific inquiry and debated action here, folks. Uh, he bets a guy called Gordon Kane $100 that they wouldn't find the Higgs particle that they found in the LHC. So he, he lost that bet, then paid up his $100. Fantastic. Uh, apparently, he was recently on the John Oliver show and uh, showed humor, great humor, towards the comedian as well. Kind of beat him at his own game with his sense of humor. So an amazing man and to yeah and what an influence on us and, and in our world um news story that we're going to come back and look at is when it comes to great minds or beautiful minds beautiful minds that movie with russell crowe uh, mathematician john nash was killed earlier this week in a crash which is very sad news indeed we'll be having a look and uh, paying a little homage to john nash in a few moments and your questions coming in so what's your question when it comes to science uh one here from vinay saying a thousand years ago in India, how could the astronomers distinguish between planets and stars without a telescope? Even their paths, how did they do it? So lots to discuss with you. Keep your questions coming in on science. We're going to come back and address them all during the next hour and a half. And talking science this morning with Rowan Roberts, who is the director of SciFest Dubai. It's coming up at the end of this year from October the 4th through to the 9th at Children's City. And really uh, celebrating the world of science, technology, philosophy, uh, all that goes with that, astronomy and uh, space travel even. And we've got some news stories 
on space travel coming out of the UAE. Joining him is fellow uh, enthusiast when it comes to all things science. That's Adam Griffin. So great to have you back in the studio and asking you this morning for your burning questions when it comes to the world of science 4001 or via our messenger app. And uh, question here, how long will it be before the human race realizes war is a waste of time and life? I think uh, pretty soon because looking at the newspapers, it's easy to fall into despair and uh, feel gloomy about the prospects of war ending anytime soon. But the fact is, um, you know, I'm the co-founder of Intelligent Optimism and the aim is to get people to uh, acknowledge that based on science, reason and evidence that things are actually getting better. So if you look at things rationally in terms of statistics, the number of wars has actually been reducing. So in the 1990s, uh, we had uh, around 13 wars. And war is a technical word. You know, a, a war is any conflict where you have more than a thousand deaths on average per year and if you compare that with with today we have around seven wars um, so the number of wars has actually decreased uh, in the last 20 years but what about fatalities uh, even the average number of deaths per war has reduced dramatically really uh, you know in the 1940s and 50s we were looking at over 50,000 deaths on average per conflict now it's down to seven or eight hundred um, if you look at the types of wars. Uh, the number of civil wars are down. Colonial wars have disappeared. The number of interstate wars has reduced. So um, I think we have reasons to uh, not celebrate, but to be a little optimistic and acknowledge that humans have realized more or less that wars aren't going to solve uh, solve uh, problems. And uh, yes, Can you ever see a world where there would be no war? Um, in the near future, yes, I think uh, I think that's the way. I mean, the more we trade, the more uh, us uh, 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 we, we're connected on social media. The more we see ourselves as as brothers, as um, as one species, you know. And when we when we have the first man on on Mars, that's when we'll truly acknowledge uh, that we are one species. And so I think as a species, we're getting closer and closer together. We we show compassion. Think of uh, these uh, tsunamis that take place or uh, global catastrophes, how quickly people uh, pledge uh, support and how immediately we mobilize funds to take care of people from different countries. We're seeing this with Nepal at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody feels for people of other countries. So I think we have every reason to be optimistic. Mm. I think that what you're talking about, that empathy and that moving away from violence towards kind of caring more for a fellow man, that's a really nice idea. I think we're certainly, certainly doing that. But that transition is not going to be an easy one. We're for, we have many, many generations of evolution hardwiring us to have a certain fear for these other guys. And we are competitive and we are, have a certain level of aggression by nature. But that when I work with, because I work in the area of kind of mental health and psychology and you kind of, you work a lot with these and you see it even change throughout the lifespan of a person. So when a child has trouble sharing things and can have a natural knee-jerk reaction towards violence, but you grow out of that. In the same way as a species, we're gradually growing out of this kind of knee-jerk, hands-off-my-stuff Oh, the other guy's the bad guy sort of thing. So we need to carry on down that road, but there still will be times we always have to be, we be aware of that natural inclination towards aggression, and then we can grow past it. Interesting, isn't it, how it's almost like um, changing thought patterns and behaviors, patterns of behavior, and learning that way uh, almost globally. But is, or is it the case that we are born with this, inclination towards wanting 
to win, wanting to defend, feeling that one wants to rule and take over? Is that something that is within man or is it something that has been learned out of either maybe a necessity or just out of from the tribal kind of instincts as we've evolved? There's a really good question. Ah, <laughs> that's an interesting one. I'd say it's you could most of these things that you argue the old nature nurture debate comes up for everything, and it's always elements of both. And so you can have there's a little bit of your natural inclination, and you can see it throughout the animal kingdom, not even just in people. It's more kind of clearly described in other competitive predatory species. But in people, yeah, we do have this natural inclination towards this. But then it's the environment and the moral values we're instilled within us as we grow up as well so there's they kind of go hand in hand a little bit but I think it is there is that possibility of advancement yeah and I also think uh, it all comes down to empathy which is the cause of both our kindness and our violence and that sounds a bit strange but it comes down to in-group out-group so we're very empathetic towards people in the in-group to those within our tribe and in order to protect people in our tribe we are uh, violent and aggressive towards people from a different tribe but what's happening in our globally interconnected world is that people of different countries are now being viewed as part of the in-tribe. So we're more empathetic towards people of different nationalities, different religions, different creeds and cultures, and that's what's driving this um, a decrease in, in, in violence that we're, that, that we're observing globally, even though that goes against what most newspapers will print. Um, someone's just texted in to say I disagree with the notion that the more we trade the less likely we will engage with war against each other um, if you know looking at uh, you know, countries at the moment China and the US um, they are each other's largest trade partners and yet both um, uh, can be could be potentially in conflict against each other uh, so that's an interesting point to make as well uh, but the bottom line is they haven't gone to war mm. no they haven't <laughs> and they will think 10 times before they do because there's billions and billions of dollars to be lost. Mm. You, there's a massive, the issue is there's a massive confirmation bias towards the violence. We don't notice all the wars that are not happening. It's just the violence that you see and is really, really well, kind of perhaps over-reported that there's this old trope in journalism that if it bleeds, it leads. That's, it has to be violent to really get the air, or to get the kind of column inches, really. So that's we're, we're so immersed in viewing that all of the time. That's what we see in our kind of, our little uh, cultural viewpoint of violence is this it's all around us keep your questions coming in and your thoughts good discussions this morning on science and uh, we're going to take a look now at John Nash uh, who inspired the Oscar winning film A Beautiful Mind and he sadly tragically died this week in a car crash with his wife Um, he's 86 and his 82 year old wife uh, killed when their taxi crashed in New Jersey in uh, America he's renowned for his work in game theory winning the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1994 but here are report here now from the BBC on John Nash and his life. Russell Crowe played John Nash in the Oscar-winning A Beautiful Mind. The film chronicles the scientific breakthroughs he made as a mathematician, as well as his long struggle with schizophrenia. In real life, in 1994, at the age of 66, John Nash was awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics. It was for his work on game theory, the study of decision-making and the maths of how groups of people behave and interact. A decade later, he said the award which he won when he was unemployed and on social security had had a tremendous impact on his life. I'd become widely known, but uh, in a sense it wasn't officially recognised. 
I was quoted very frequently in the literature of economics and mathematics, but it's quite difficult to get an official recognition that transformed my life. John Nash was killed with his wife Alicia, with whom he'd campaigned about mental health. In 1959, he started to have these paranoid delusions, and essentially the rest of his career was lost to mental illness, even though he started to recover in, 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 in the 1990s. So what you have is that he made incredibly deep results with a career that was really short, only about 10 years, and for that he was a giant of mathematics. Russell Crowe tweeted that he was stunned by the death of John Nash and his wife. An amazing partnership, he wrote. Beautiful minds beautiful hearts. And the president of Princeton University where he taught said his brilliant work had inspired generations. So we're listening just then to a report from the BBC on John Nash, who passed away this week in a car accident, actually, in New Jersey. Uh, He was born in Bluefield, West Virginia. He studied in Pittsburgh before moving to Princeton. Uh, He's known uh, for the gaming theory, the game theory rather than gaming theory, um, publishing some of uh, his breakthrough works, uh, which in in game theory which is the mathematical study of decision making which is something i hadn't realized and i know that uh, adam's very keen to get in and talk about him but just to explain that when he his recommendation letter for princeton was this man is a genius yeah john nash is one of these guys people he's one of those nondescript names john nash it's like john smith that doesn't stick in your head really but he has changed the way people think and really to use a cliche the way people do business but in a literal sense that his his theory this game theory affects things we do from urban planning to economics and trading and anything that's based on how people make decisions about what they're going to do next um there was for the world of economics we had all the work of people like adam smith who's like this behemoth of economics and thought that everyone, the best results, if everyone goes out and does what's best for themselves, it's best for the common good. But then um, John Nash said, no, it's actually best if you think what's best for myself and best for the group. There's a, a famous kind of thought experiment he had called the prisoner's dilemma, which is how he described it. But actually, I prefer the way he described it. And it's illustrated in that movie as well, which is called The Blonde in the Bar. And that's a really nice way to describe it. So he's in the bar with his four college buddies and four brunettes and a blonde, or five brunettes and a blonde walk into the bar and they all are eyeing up the blonde. They all think, oh God, she's really pretty. Who will go and talk to her? But he thought, okay, if we all go and talk to the blonde, we're all getting each other's way and we'll go nowhere. But if we talk to the blonde and then go to the brunettes, the brunettes don't want to be second choice and going, go away, this is terrible. But if we ignore the blonde, no one gets the blonde. We all go to the brunettes. Then we're all happy. Everyone's happy. Except the blonde, of course. <laughs> yeah. But it's the thing that no one is the overall winner. It's the best for all involved. Now, what's interesting to me when I hear that is that sounds like psychology to me. But he was a mathematician. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, he won the Nobel Prize for economics. It wasn't even in math. But he always considered himself a mathematician. And this is what makes Game 3 so interesting for me. It's all about kind of uh, the way people think. So it's as much about psychology. When you run the experiments in the prisoner's dilemma, for example or in theory like it's very much like the blonde in the bar you're always thinking oh Pete the the person making the decisions is what we call a rational agent they're doing making rational decisions people are not rational agents I like this area in John Nash because everyone who's listening is living in a 
perfect experiment of game theory. If you're driving on Shakeside Road in traffic, oh, that's game theory in action. We would all get where we're meant to going if everyone just stayed in their lanes. Just calm down, people. You'll get where you're going. But you'll see people changing lanes and cutting up and trying to get to be the first one, even three cars ahead, one car ahead, and everyone goes slower because of this. And that's game theory in action. So you see it all over the place. Queuing in the cinema is my personal little bugbear, but I could go on for like 20 minutes <laughs> of that. Fantastic. It's really interesting. Um, if, if any of the listeners out there are interested in how game theory has an impact on species selection and natural selection or biology in general, an excellent book is called The Selfish Gene by uh, Richard Dawkins, in which he makes these extraordinary connections between game theory and uh, natural selection, how species uh, try to survive, not try to survive uh, willingly, but how species evolve and change and, uh, and deal with uh, the environment they, they live in. Let's come back on uh, the question earlier from one of our listeners regarding war and uh, will there ever become a time when uh, the human race realises war is a waste of time and life and uh, commentating on that um, and commenting on that rather and um, people here uh, Inam saying uh, about a figure on the number of fatalities and displacement worldwide due to conflicts today compared to wars in the past so this is coming back on what you were saying Rowan that if we want to think optimistically actually there are less wars today and there are less fatalities today than in previous uh, times. So to qualify a little bit more on that. Uh, Well, uh, just to quickly answer this question, I don't have the uh, statistics at my fingertips, but an excellent book I can recommend is uh, by Steven Pinker, who is a Harvard professor, and it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it's, uh, it's a massive book. It's a tome of a book and it's filled with statistics, graphs, information from uh, science sources, from the United Nations, from FBI, from various uh, uh, reliable sources about everything from war to accidents to rates of murder and things. Um, So I would highly recommend that book. And there's uh, another book by Michael Shermer, who's the editor of Skeptic Magazine, and it's just come out a couple of months ago. It's called The Moral Arc, and it also um, seeks to convince the reader that things have been getting better if you look at the historical past and compare it with the present. And uh, good morning. Sorry, yes, go on. Oh, just one other thing. If you do want to find out about that, if you are put off slightly by like an 800-page statistical tome <laughs> by Stephen Pinker, check out his TED Talk as well. That's a really nice summary of it. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, good morning to Uta. She says, uh, the ancient Indian Sanskrit writings give insight to human consciousness. It seems life, uh, it sees life as an energy as part of the whole. All comes down to human consciousness and awareness. The more violent our thoughts are, the more violent our are our surroundings wars come from downfalls of our mind and letting down the heart okay yeah, yeah it's a spiritual way of looking yeah, at it absolutely. and i think what we have talked about before is this idea of uh human consciousness and global consciousness so the more positive you are one hopes that spreads and in theory you could shift countries you could shift governments you could shift globally in some people's minds mm, yeah. yeah it's a really interesting thought the one thing i'll come back with not to be kind of pessimistic about it but there are lots of variations in cultural thought and the way we kind of think about these really big existential topics, but they still the, the kind of fear of the outgroup and those aggressions, they still, there's very few communities without those, those challenges of aggression and of violence to, to one another, unless I'm mistaken. Mm. Mm-hmm. And coming back on John Nash, um, one person here, Sam, good morning, saying Nash was famously known for Nash uh, equivalent. Qu- 
equilibrium. Uh, mm. The game theory was one of his achievements, but not as high as the Nash equilibrium from Sam. Thanks for that. And also somebody else says here, John Nash was a huge factor in my political science studies too, was always fascinated with game theory. Yeah, absolutely. That's one, that's the real big, big change. That was a game changer, you could even say, mm-hmm. pardon the pun, um, is that uh, Nash equilibrium. So it just means that if you imagine the equilibrium, like the scales of justice sort of thing, that that will find a balance point. It's, there's a certain, a nice way to think about it, it was like a pot and poker. There's a certain pot to be won, and it can be shared out, but no one, it, it will be shared out between people. There's no one who wins more than is available within the pot. If you are interested in this one, one reason I like game theory is um, I've talked a little bit before in the show about Coursera. So Coursera is this uh, online resource that offers university-level courses from really great institutions. And you can actually, this afternoon, you can go on your online and you can uh, enroll in Stanford University and study game theory, all about the stuff John Nash has done. And that's what I did before. So I did the little game theory course from Stanford on Coursera, totally free, and I'll give you a great understanding of how this, and it actually makes it very interesting observing the unusual things your fellow man will do in the city around you. Well, fantastic. Well, in the city around you, you have Cafe Scientifique, which is a regular meetup group uh, where you can get together in a relaxed atmosphere and just talk science, as we are doing this morning. And the next one coming up, Rowan's behind Cafe Scientifique, and it's on the 26th of June. Where's it happening? It's happening at Urban Bistro in Media City the CNN building and it'll be on from 5 to uh, 6.30 uh, rather sorry because it's Ramadan we'll have to change the timing so it's from 7 to 8.30 um, and uh, just to allay the fears of some of our listeners you don't have to be a science nerd everyone's welcome we have people of all ages from 16 to 65 and even older people from all walks of life it's very friendly it's very informal it's a great way to talk about something substantial uh, over the weekend 